Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. I am fascinated not just by the world we live in, but by the people who live here. You know, it's never just trees we're talking about, it's also human cultures across space and time. One particular interest I have in regards to this is called vexillology. Vexillology is the study of flags, which may seem fairly basic at first, but a flag is supposed to be the visual representation of the people who wave it. It is a cross between art and cultural geography, and what a nation or collective body of people place on their flag means something. And, you know, I am just a little disappointed that so few flags feature trees. I have spent hours presenting you all with the histories, cultures, and religions that make up our world and how strongly they are influenced by trees. You'd think it'd be a more common practice. But there are a few nations with trees on their flags, and one has always stuck out to me. Lebanon. Lebanon's flag features alternating horizontal bars of red, white, and red, with a green tree right in the middle. That tree is a species known as the Cedar of Lebanon, and as I've said, if it's featured on their flag, then it must be very representative of the people who call this country home. Let's talk about the Cedar of Lebanon, and why it is so deserving of this rare position. familiar with a number of trees that are referred to as cedar, but most of those are not truly cedars. True cedar trees, as classified in science, belong to the genus Cedrus. This just comes from the ancient Greek word for cedar. Within this genus, there are actually only a few species. The Atlas cedar of northwestern Africa, the Deodar cedar of the western Himalayas, and the cedar of Lebanon of the eastern Mediterranean. All of these trees prefer to grow at higher elevations, typically on the western slopes of mountain ranges in their regions, where they can catch a lot more moisture. Some taxonomists will argue that there's a couple more species, but some will also argue that the Atlas and Deodar cedars are just regionally displaced varieties of the cedar of Lebanon. So I'm sticking somewhere in the middle. Now what does a true cedar look like? The Cedrus genus is in the pine family. So if you wanted to call them pine trees, then I guess I understand, but at this point, I feel like you're just trying to spite me. In a broader sense, these are evergreen conifers. They're pretty big, too. They'll generally grow to be around 100 feet tall, with the tallest stretching up to 130 feet or 38 meters. And as I've explained with pine family children before, the easiest way, in my opinion, to tell them apart is by how the needle-shaped leaves are attached to the twigs. Cedar needles admittedly look very similar to pine needles, but remember that pine needles form in tight bundles or sheaths of two to five needles each. Cedars are very distinct, and the way they form foliage is actually very reminiscent of the ginkgo. Off of their main branches, they will form what are called short shoots or spur shoots, little nubbins that over the years just keep growing on top of each other and form short stubby branches. It's these spur shoots that the cedar needles form on. They'll cluster in a circle around the tip of that shoot. So circular clusters at the end of the twig, essentially. The other notable characteristic with evergreen conifers is the cones. Cedar cones are actually very similar to fir cones, which I only mention briefly if at all during the Christmas tree episode. These cones form like big, dense eggs that sit upright on their branches rather than hanging down like pine cones or spruce cones. 
but you're rarely going to find any on the ground to take home because they don't just drop whole. Instead, each scale drops off one by one until there's just nothing left except for the cone skeletal structure, which doesn't look quite as cool as it sounds. Early taxonomists actually saw this cone similarity as evidence that these trees were very closely related to fir trees. But more modern genetic research has indicated that true cedars are actually more basal in the pine family. This means that when the pine family group was first starting to evolve into different sets of related species, the cedars were among the first trees to come about as a new distinct species, meaning that the cedar species have been around longer than just about any other types of conifers in the pine family. And like I said, these are not the cedar trees you may have originally thought of. It's probably not the cedar tree in your backyard or park. It might be, there was one true cedar on my college campus. But it's more likely some species of juniper or cypress or arbor vitae. The gorgeous cedar wood that many are so familiar with that has those vibrant bands of pink and orange and smells so good is actually eastern red cedar, which is a species of juniper, not even in the same family as true cedars. So why is there this name confusion? Why do we use this name for so many trees if that's not what they are? Folks who name trees are not always original. If they are more familiar with a different tree and a new tree reminds them of that other tree, they will simply name the new tree in reference to the old. The way that this is generally done is that they will name the tree with an add-on descriptor in a way that indicates it's not actually the original tree. For example, in the name Eastern Red Cedar, Red cedar is one word, which is supposed to indicate that it is like cedar, but red. It was named because its wood is of the same quality as the old cedars, but red rather than yellow. They will also use hyphens in the same way. Northern white cedar has a hyphen between white and cedar. If it was a true cedar, the name cedar would have no attachments. But here's the thing, no one knows that. So is it a bad thing that you've been calling something a cedar tree when it's actually a juniper? No, it's not. I'm not trying to tell you that you're wrong. I'm trying to give you some context, and if you remember it, then fine. And if not, then also fine. These weird naming conventions are used often with cedar specifically because those true cedar species have been considered to be holy since the dawn of civilization. The very first human empires had stories about the true cedars, and so it's one of those old trees that botanists have historically just wanted to draw a comparison to. But let me tell you these stories, and you can judge the cedar of Lebanon's merits for yourself. What were the earliest human empires? I've mentioned them in a very broad sense. Anytime I've brought up old cultivated plants, I may have talked about them passing through Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is the land between the Iranian Plateau and the Mediterranean Sea, and is often referred to as the Cradle of Civilization. Not necessarily the place where humans first originated necessarily, but the first lands where people settled and formed societies and cities, where written language was developed and new technologies like the wheel were kicking us off on a long journey of progress. Mesopotamia itself is merely a region where the first empires rose and fell. The earliest that we know of was called the Sumerian Empire, which lasted from around 4000 to 2000 BCE. Around the time, the oldest bristlecone pine was taking root in the mountains of eastern California. These Sumerians are the first that we are aware of to have developed a writing system, symbols that indicate words and letters. These first words were written on what are called cuneiform tablets. 
Cuneiform means wedge-shaped, in reference to how early scribes would use angled reed straws to make wedge-shaped indentations into soft clay to form the first written expressions of thought. And while Sumer kicked off the writing craze, this practice was greatly expanded by the Akkadian Empire that ultimately replaced it. The Akkadian language preserved in these clay tablets that somehow survived thousands of years is considered to be the oldest preserved form of Semitic language that ultimately led to more modern languages like Hebrew and Arabic. It was in the writings of this Akkadian Empire that we not only see written records of events, but also the oldest written stories that we have ever found. This oldest story is called the Epic of Gilgamesh, a legend about a demigod and king named Gilgamesh, which was found and translated from 12 incomplete tablets. These tablets relay tales of Gilgamesh's accomplishments, like building the wall of the great city of Uruk, his journeys, and ultimately his death. In one of these journeys, Gilgamesh travels with his friend Enkidu to kill a demon named Humbaba and earn fame as a hero of men. Humbaba lived in a divine place called the Cedar Forest. Early translators believe this forest to be in reference to the Cedar of Lebanon specifically. This forest is holy and has never been cut, but Gilgamesh just starts chopping away at these cedars to get the demon's attention. It works. Humbaba appears, and a great battle ensues. But ultimately, Gilgamesh and his friend are victorious. But not before the demon curses friend Enkidu in his dying breath. You know, normal legend things. Without its guardian, Gilgamesh is free to cut more cedars and takes the wood back to build the grand gates of his walled city and also a strong boat to take him down the Euphrates River. Ultimately, the symbolism here is that the cedar of Lebanon is a holy, divine tree. This is just the first example of such a presentation, simply a testament to the longevity of its influence on human culture. It continues from there. Throughout Judeo-Christian lore, we see a landform known as Mount Lebanon be referenced as a holy site. The strongest concentration of cedar forest is here in this eastern Mediterranean range, and it is from this forest that wood was gathered to build the first temple of Jerusalem. In the Bible, the cedar is mentioned numerous times, and its symbolism is very consistent. Just and righteous men are said to grow and flourish like various aspects of the natural world. A variety of examples are given, but the cedar of Lebanon is the most consistent one used. It is a pure and absolute symbol of existence that humans should strive for. After all, trees don't sin, and so if we want to strive to be righteous people, we should be as nature is, and the cedar of Lebanon just so frequently gets attached. I always like to find a tangible connection to this symbolism, a physical characteristic of why these trees are held in such high regard or for specific reasons. The answer here is in the wood. I'll usually talk about the various ways that we've physically used a tree, but I tend to focus more on unique applications that set a certain tree apart from others. But many tree species find use in society from the wood they provide for construction. It's just so common that I don't feel the need to always bring it up. In the stories of Gilgamesh, it made city gates. For early Jews, it built a temple. And for the settlers of Catan, it made roads and settlements. In this cradle of civilization situated in modern-day Middle East, we see arable land which was great for the start of agriculture. But it's not a region where we see as many dense, plentiful forests like that of East Asia, Europe, or North America. So an incredible fount of material like the cedar forests of Mount Lebanon would be seen as a godsend. Another early society was a nation of merchants living around modern-day Lebanon called the Phoenicians. They established a central trade between Mesopotamia and the budding Egyptian empire because of the ships they were able to construct using cedar wood. And these trees didn't just go towards building boats, this wood was a traded commodity, 
it gave the early Egyptians necessary construction material that helped them become the power they did. Essentially, the cedar forests of Mount Lebanon are seen as holy because they gave us wood. And because of what this forest has provided, people living in the area closely connected with this tree. These connections have persisted over time. Sticking with Mount Lebanon, the ruling party of this region has changed several times across history. Fast forwarding to the early modern age, we see the Ottoman Empire ruling these regions from the Middle Ages up until the end of World War I. At the end of World War I, the empire was dissolved, and the powers that be were in charge of figuring out how to split that land up into countries. The powers that be were two white dudes from Europe, so the outcome was never really going to be ideal. At first, the modern countries of Lebanon and Syria were simply made territories of France and left alone until they thought of a better idea. But even then, the people in this region already had a strong sense of national identity. Even just a territory, and long after the Phoenician trading culture faded out of importance, these people rallied around the symbol that was the cedar of Lebanon. Their flag as a territory was made up of the French colors with the cedar tree front and center. They used it to make a statement in the face of the wider empire being broken apart that they had a cause to union that would break all attacks against them. And in 1943, they ultimately gained independence as the Lebanese Republic. Their flag was two red stripes with a white one in the middle, the white symbolizing purity like the snows of Mount Lebanon, and the red symbolizing the blood that was shed on the path to identity. That identity is symbolized as the cedar of Lebanon right in the middle. That identity was the most important thing to them. They insisted that they were a Phoenician state, their own people regardless of the Christian influence of Europe and the Arabic influence of the Middle East. They were the people of the cedar above all else. The tree is repeatedly used as a symbol of identity in so many settings. It's a symbol of their armed forces and it serves as a shield sigil for multiple Lebanese cities. In the modern day, however, you'll find as much political division within the borders of this republic as you will in any other country. A variety of different countries, though, may have different flags representing different ideals. But in Lebanon idealist groups, political parties, and various other factions, they all use the cedar of Lebanon as their symbol of rallying point. This tree is a steadfast symbol of cultural identity. And even more recently, the cedar of Lebanon has become a rallying point of land protection and preservation. The origin of this symbolism, after all, comes from resource use. It can't be unexpected that after a long history, such use has posed a threat to the species. At this point, the species is listed as vulnerable, at risk of extinction if protections are not put in place. But multiple reserves have been put in place that were created to help this species and any other species that relies on the cedar forest. Places like the Al-Shuf Cedar Nature Reserve, a place where all religions see the land as holy and are welcome to share it, and the Horsh Ars al-Rab, also called the Forest of the Cedars of God, which is working on a massive reforestation project. The Cedar of Lebanon is a terrific example of what so many trees mean to us. They are a symbol of our culture, they give meaning to our faiths, and they give identity to our ethnicities. What they provide for us gave us the opportunities to be who we are today. My next episode will come out November 16th, and it is the last episode that I scheduled to release way back in May. I recently went back and looked at the first tree, the sugar maple, and realized I could have spent more time talking about the other maple species. And I still want to talk about them, so before this podcast takes a break, I'm going to go back and revisit the maple for you. I'll shed a little light on those species that are special, but overshadowed.
I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees, and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love. Give it a hug.